that applause should be for our Lord because He is the one who's faithful. Always with us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's His promise to His people. And I also believe God has been with our nation over the years to help us be a beacon of freedom to the world and to be a sending station, if you will, for God's people, missionaries to take His Word around the world. But it's come at a great price. Many women have given their lives over the years, and, and uh, at the end of our service, we're going to say thank you to the veterans and those who are currently serving in the military. But I want to begin by asking you a question. How many of you remember what the first battle in the American Revolution was? What do you think it was? Lexington, Concord, Massachusetts. Y'all remember all that? Are y'all awake? <laughs> all right. It was early in the morning in, on April 19, 1775, when about 40 men from that small village gathered to face 700 advancing British troops. And in just a few moments, eight of those 40 men would be dead and the others would scatter. And the war for independence was on. Now that's the part of the story that historically we've, we've heard about in school and on television that many of us no, but what most Americans don't know is what happened the evening before. It was 1 o'clock in the morning when John Hancock and Samuel Adams met in the home of Reverend Jonas Clark, the pastor for the past 20 years of the small congregational church in that little village. And soon they were joined by Paul Revere, who told them that the British were indeed coming. They'd be there sometime the next day. And then Paul Revere left that home and made his famous ride into Boston declaring the British are coming, the British are coming. And very quickly, Hancock, Adams, and Reverend Clark held a council of war to determine whether or not to call out the local militia, the men, to uh, be ready to fight. All three of them voted yes. And so at 2 in the morning, the church bell rang, calling all the men of that village to war. The first person to greet them as they showed up was Reverend Clark. What most people today don't realize, but people of that day knew, was that the pulpits of this country in the 1770s preached liberty and supported the American Revolution and the war against Britain. The leaders of the revolution, those that you think about, Washington and Adams and Hancock and all the others, knew that they needed and they also wanted the support of God's preachers, the support of God's church, and the support of God's people. The founding fathers understood that God's people are a blessing to any nation. And that if a nation is to survive and thrive, God himself is needed. Fifty-six men signed the Declaration of Independence. But what you may not know is that 24 of those 56 men, nearly half of them, had either a seminary degree or a Bible college degree. Now think about that for a moment because it tells you something about who they were. Even Thomas Jefferson, our third president and the author and a signer of the Declaration of Independence. 
the man that you often hear secularists and liberals quote about the wall of separation between church and state. And by the way, he, he, he penned that phrase, a wall of separation, in a letter written to a group of Baptists who were concerned about religious liberty. And he said, you don't need to be afraid because there's a wall that separates us so the government cannot infringe upon your freedom. Today that term's totally misapplied and misunderstood. But listen, Thomas Jefferson he wrote this, and I want you to read it with me on the screen. Look at, look at what Thomas Jefferson wrote in his own hand. He said, God, now notice this, God who gave us life gave us liberty. Who did he think freedom came from? Came from God. Thomas Jefferson. And he went on to say, and can the liberties of a nation be thought secure? Notice, when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are the gift of God. Look at that. He's saying the only way freedom can be sustained is when people know that freedom ultimately is a gift from God. And when you forget that, freedom eventually is lost. He continued, next slide. They Notice this, that they are not to be violated, but with his wrath. Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his just cannot sleep forever. Now, I could have put I could have put up there quotes from George Washington and John Adams and and Benjamin Franklin and and many many others indicating their understanding that God was central to the foundation of this nest, this nation but I, I chose Thomas Jefferson on purpose because he at times is the icon of the founding fathers of those who are wanting to stamp out religious liberty as we have historically understood it in this nation. He got it better than some of the supposedly most educated people in our world today get it. Today, some leaders want Christians to simply be quiet and go away. Take all the trappings of Christianity with us as we run and hide. There are groups constantly intimidating individual believers and institutions and businesses in this nation, seeking to have them remove all vestiges of the Christian faith. For instance, recently there was a group that, uh, and the outcome's still undecided, but there was a group that sent a letter to a university in Oklahoma, just a small public college, telling them that, in their chapel on campus, a public campus, in their chapel they have Bibles and they have an altar and they have crosses and on top of the steeple there's a cross and, and having those emblems of Christianity is a violation of the Constitution. Now it's not. I won't go into all that, but it's not. But they, they threaten and that's what happens. They threaten, they threaten, they intimidate, they threaten lawsuits, they threaten. And the president and leaders of that university very quickly decided and announced to the public that they would remove the Bibles from that chapel. They would remove all the crosses from that chapel. They would remove the cross from above the steeple in that chapel. Then there was a public backlash. The alumni were upset. And just in the last day or two, the president released a statement saying they were reconsidering all that. They would not remove the Bibles. They would not remove the crosses. And they would not remove the cross from the steeple. But instead, they would put together a study committee 
of students and faculty and community leaders to determine what to do in the future. So the outcome's still to be decided. But you see, the practice in our world today is to intimidate. And what happens is that very often those in leadership react quickly thinking they're doing something wrong and so they give in and they remove the vestiges of our Christian heritage and Christian history. It's happening more and more in our public universities, unfortunately, are at times becoming the least friendly place in America for believers to express their opinions. But see, here's the catch. Here's the problem. Too many people, including too many people in leadership in our country, do not understand what the law actually says and do not understand what the Supreme Court has actually decided. And so when this this pressure from these secular groups and pressure from atheistic groups come, they overreact. And they at times put restrictions on Christians that are in and of themselves a violation of the Constitution and the law of the land and the rulings of the court. And so increasingly, believers in America are turning to the court system, ultimately to the Supreme Court because the lower courts tend to be pretty liberal in most places. But they're turning to the courts for protection of freedom. For instance, you know, we're, we're helping plant a church in Rochester, New York. And, and not from far from Rochester's a small town called Greece, Greece, New York. I've been there. And a few years ago, I believe it was about 2008, two women in that city, in that town, sued the town because before every monthly town council meeting, they, they had a prayer. That's pretty common across America. They had a prayer. And so they were sued and went into the courts. And all across America, and, and I can remember the discussion even in Rock Hill about how our council was going to respond to all of that. And so a lot of councils and government entities started saying, well, we're, we're breaking the law and we're violating the Constitution and we're not going to do that anymore. The Supreme Court in May ruled <laughs> that government bodies can say a prayer before their meetings begin. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that or not, but it did. Yeah, yeah. In fact, the Supreme Court said in their opinion that even if those prayers are overwhelmingly Christian and the audience members are encouraged and invited to participate, it is still constitutional to say those prayers. Justice Anthony Kennedy, writing for the court, said, and I quote, and you can read it here on the screen, as a practice that has long endured, legislative prayer has become part of our heritage and tradition. Part of our expressive idiom, similar to the Pledge of Allegiance, the inaugural prayer or the recitation of God save the United States from this honorable court at the beginning of this court sessions, the Supreme Court. And, and what I'm, I'm trying to say to you, even though there are groups and individuals that seek to intimidate us and tell us we're violating the law when we express our Christian faith, I'm saying that the Constitution is not on their side. So don't be intimidated. Some of you know this, 
during our last presidential election, the Supreme Court was a major issue for those of us who are Bible-believing evangelical Christians. And I give thanks to God today that our Supreme Court is not dominated by liberals, but people who respect the heritage of religious liberty as it's been practiced for more than 200 years in this country. See, there may be groups and individuals in our nation who want us to quietly go away and take the vestiges of faith with us. Here's the main point I want to make today. Even if they don't know it, even if they don't know it, they need us. Even if they don't know it, they need the people of God. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 11, look at this. By the blessing of the upright. Who's the upright? Just look around the room. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. And that can mean a couple of things. That as God blesses his children, as he blesses those who love him and serve him and obey him and follow him, those blessings overflow in the community where they live. It also can mean that the upright, the bless, that, that the, the way we live and, and the things we do are a blessing to the place we live. And what, what God is saying is that his people in both of those ways make the place they live a better place, causes it to be exalted. He continues in that verse by saying that the wicked tear it down. The wicked ruin it and destroy it. And I want you to hear, brothers and sisters, that no matter the, the, the idea that, that some out there want you to, to just, you know, run and hide and back down, I want you to understand that God says you are a blessing to this city, to this state, to this nation, and to this world, and don't ever forget that. Even Mark Zuckerberg, who's not necessarily a friend of conservative Christians, the founder and CEO of Facebook, recently giving a speech in Chicago talking about the importance of community and how Facebook can, can, can be a, a vehicle for creating a sense of community and, and belonging. In his speech talking about the importance of community, said this, and I quote, he said, people who go to church. Now, this is Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook, okay? People who go to church are more likely to volunteer and give to charity. Not just because they're religious, but because they're part of a community. And you know he's right? Research has shown over and over and over that the people who volunteer in community organizations, service projects, more than any other group, it's not even close, are those who go to church. If those who go to church stop volunteering, most of our organizations that help people would be very, very limited in what they could do. It's also been shown time and time again by empirical data that those who go to church give much more generously to charity than those who don't go to church. And many of the groups in this community and around this country 
that help people at a point of need and crisis would have to shut their doors if it wasn't for the generosity of people who go to church. And I remind you again of what God said all those hundreds and hundreds of years ago in the book of Proverbs, the blessings of the upright exalt a city. You are a blessing to this country and to this city, whether people in this world understand that and appreciate that or not. We, 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 we do it for two reasons. We serve and, and we give because of our religion. He said it's not just because of religion but because of community. It is in part because of our faith. When, when you're walking with Christ, you just serve. When you're walking with Christ in obedience, you're generous and you give. That's why I said what I did a moment ago during the offering, that, that God's people, generous people, don't complain. They just enjoy the opportunity to impact this world through every way, including giving. Our faith forms us, influences us, and shapes us. Is that not true? But it's also because we're part of community. Listen, we're, we're a family of faith. That's what we call ourselves, the First Baptist Church, family of faith. And I'll tell you something. We encourage one another, not just when we're discouraged, but we encourage one another to do those things that are good and that make a difference. Every November and December, those Saturdays between Thanksgiving and Christmas, members of this congregation or at the entrances to Walmart out here, ringing the bell for the Salvation Army so they don't have to pay people to do it, and, and, and air, serving and then giving Salvation Army bell and bucket out here at the Christmas Eve service, and they get more money from that one offering on Christmas Eve than they do from what we do at Walmart. Just think about that. It's the generosity of the people of God to give and to serve. Example after example, your Sunday school class does a project in the community or some ministry in this community. And because your class is doing it, you come together and you encourage one another. And yes, it's our individual faith in Christ and it's our collective faith. We come together and we encourage one another and we are a blessing to this city, to this nation, and to this world because of it. And don't ever, don't ever forget that. But it's also about prayer. We bless this nation with prayer. I, uh, I remember 9-11. And that evening, you, those of you who were here then, you remember 9-11, we were downtown in the old building. And that evening on 9-11, the sanctuary and the balcony was packed to overflowing as this community came together. And all we did was pray 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 when there's a crisis even the secularists turn to the church and to prayer when, when you're at work or you're in your neighborhood and somebody who doesn't go to church and somebody doesn't know jesus and suddenly they learn they have cancer or a, a member of their family is suffering in some severe way they, they know you're a follower of christ and and they'll say will you pray for me or if you offer prayer, they, they say, oh, please, thank you so much for that because prayer is a blessing. And, and I want you to remember what God said, the upright, the blessing of the upright, exalt a city. And, and, and our morality, our, our righteous living. Do, do you understand that, <clears throat> that unrighteousness, 
that, that evil deeds are a drain on a community, are, are a drain on a, a nation. So much of our energy and effort to serve and so much of the resources we give are used to help people who've made a mess of their own life. And, and we serve them because they need and we, we serve them because of love, but, but it's a drain because they've created a mess. Is that not true? The first 10 verses of this chapter, before you get to verse 11 where he talks about how the blessing of the upright exalts the city in the first 10 verses, in each verse he contrasts the behavior of the righteous and the unrighteous. And, and the difference it makes in people's lives, and in, in the community. And, and, and one exalts a nation. One exalts a city, builds it up and strengthens it. The other tears it down. The other makes it weak. Some of you have seen the movies and read in your history books. I don't, I don't know if any of you, you, you weren't around then, I don't think. Maybe somebody at the very beginning, but you were a baby and don't remember the roaring 20s and the early 30s and prohibition and all the gangsters and all that stuff. How many of you recognize the name Al Capone? Remember that name? You know, a bad, bad gangster into prostitution and, and bootleg whiskey and gambling and murder and, and he ruled Chicago and it was just a, it was just a terrible place at a terrible time. He bribed many of the police and politicians. And you all know the story about Elliot Ness, the government agent, the treasury agent, he and his men who just made life miserable for Capone, raiding his, his activities and costing him millions and millions of dollars. Capone wanted to put a stop to it. Eventually he put a hit on Ness, but before that he tried to bribe him. He sent a messenger to Elliot Ness with an envelope. And in that envelope was $2,000 cash. Elliot Ness' salary for a whole year, now remember, this is 1929. His salary for the whole year was $2,800. And, and this representative from Capone said, if you'll just lay off, if you'll just back off, you will get $2,000 every week. Every week, all you have to do is just back off. Do you know what Elliot Ness did? He, he handed the envelope back to Capone's messenger and sent him away. And then he called a press conference. And he told all the newspapers what Capone had tried to do. And the next morning, the headline in the Chicago newspapers read, Ness and his men are un." Untouchable, and thus the name the untouchables was born. And what God is saying in chapter 11 of Proverbs and all those verses where he contrasts the behavior of the righteous and the unrighteous is be different. You, you want to help America? You, you want to bless America? You, you want to build up this nation, build up this state, build up this city? Be different than the culture around you. Live like someone who's a member of the kingdom of God. Live as a righteous and godly man, a righteous and godly woman. And don't buy into what the world is saying because the world, the flesh, the devil are none of God and you are of God. So listen to him and be different. It's okay. It's okay to be different. 
Don't, don't feel like you have to fit in and be like everybody else because whether they know it or not, by, by your difference, by your moral lifestyle and by your prayers and your service and your generosity, you are exalting this nation. You are a blessing to this nation. And one last word. For those of you who are not followers of Jesus Christ, he says in Proverbs 11, verse 4, talking about the difference between the wicked, the unrighteous, and the righteous. He said in verse 4, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. He said you can, you can live your life the way the world says, trying to get ahead and accumulate as much and much and much as you want. But in the day of wrath, the day of death, the day you face God, it won't make any difference. It won't help you any at all. But righteousness, being right with God, being right with Jesus and living for him, living in, in faithful service to Jesus, delivers you from death, delivers you from the wrath of God, delivers you from hell, and offers you not only a better life in the here and now, but eternal life in heaven with the Father. And so I would say, dear Christian, be different. And don't be ashamed of the difference. Be a blessing to this place. And I would say to those who are not Christians, those who don't know Christ, prepare for death because it's coming. Give your life to Jesus Christ. This morning when we sing this next song, and pastors stand here at the front, and I'll ask you to stand with me now and pastors to come quickly. I'm asking you, if you've never given your life to Christ, to come and say to one of these pastors today, Today, I'm committing myself to Jesus. Today, I want to be among the righteous. Today, I want to be made right with God. Today, I want to get ready for death and eternity. Today, I want to get ready to meet God. And you can simply by committing your life to Jesus Christ. Come and say to one of these pastors, that's what I want. I want to become a follower of Jesus. And those of you who are Christians and church members, I want you to pray for this nation. Get on your knees here at this altar and pray for this nation. But as you're praying for America, I want you to pray for yourself. I want you to ask God to give you the courage and the boldness to never be ashamed of the name Jesus. To never be ashamed to do what is right and what is ethical and what is moral. To never be ashamed to say, I'll cling to the word of God and not to the words of this culture. To never be ashamed to say, this is who I am. I'm a follower of Christ and I'm going to love you and I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to serve you and I'm going to be a generous person. Come and pray that you are a bold, kind, obedient, faithful believer in Jesus Christ and bless this city, bless this nation. And bless this world. Come, join this church. Say to one of these, I want to be a part of First Baptist. As we sing together, you come right now. Come quickly.